1: Welcome to Spooky Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar. Sorry, I cannot help myself. Anyway, I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek, and this week we are indulging in all of my favorite things because it is Halloween. That means mummies and witches and familiars and skulls and death, death everywhere. So this week we're talking to Caitlin Dowdy, everyone's favorite mortician, about the different ways that people around the world deal with dying and the afterlife, and how she herself might want to go.
0: You know, maybe I want to be a Yetita, Maybe I want to have an open-air pyre. Maybe I want to be composted. All of these things sound lovely. What I don't want is to be pumped full of chemicals and sealed in a white, fluffy silk casket in the ground. But beyond that, have fun with me. You know, I'm the death girl in my life. So let's let's keep me going after I die.
1: And then, as if a segment full of delectable death practices weren't enough, we brought on one of the world's foremost witchcraft experts, the medieval historian Ronald Hutton, who will take your early modern witch hunt and raise you a cataclysmic Roman one.
2: The first great witch hunters in Europe were not medieval Christians. They were ancient Romans, the pagan Romans, who killed people on suspicion of using magic to kill others. On a scale unknown in later centuries in Europe, thousands of people perished hundreds of years before the birth of Christ.
1: Not everybody believes in witches. Siberia, after all, blames its misdeeds on ghosts. And not everyone can be a witch for Halloween, sorry, or else it would be a very boring holiday. So let's talk about something we all experience, and always have, and always will. And I don't care what you say, Silicon Valley, we're all gonna die. Caitlin Doughty is the death professional behind the internet's favorite show about the afterlife. Ask a Mortician, and founder of the Order of the Good Death, which works to overcome our culture's anxiety about dying, grief, and the afterlife. She runs her own funeral home, Undertaking LA, which offers alternatives to traditional formaldehyde-soaked burial practices. Caitlin has written a new book, From Here to Eternity, in which she travels the world in search of the good death, from Mexico and North Carolina to Japan and Bolivia, learning about the ways other groups of humans have approached the end of life. She's joining us from Los Angeles. Thanks for being here, Caitlin. Thank you for having me. So your first book was all about your relationship with death as a human, a mortician, an advocate, and how you're trying to change American views on it. So for listeners who may not have gotten a chance to ask a mortician, so to speak, what makes a good death, in your view, and and why are we so bad about thinking about death in the
0: United States? The term the good death, even though I use it frequently, is a pretty fraught term because it leads to people saying, but what about all of the bad deaths? that we have, especially right now with black people, with trans people, um, with people who don't have access to the resources of what you might call a good death. And my counter argument to that is that pursuing a good death is still a really important exercise because my friend Chanel says it really beautifully. She says there's optional suffering and then there's non-optional suffering. And in talking about death and talking about what's required, talking about the paperwork, talking about how you feel about death, what you might want done with your dead body, talking about those things in advance can remove a lot of the optional suffering that comes with a death. We can't remove the non-optional suffering, whether someone died in horrible gun violence or they died airy-fairy in their bed surrounded by roses at age 90, but we can remove some of the optional suffering. So what the good death is, I think, is trying to pursue the removal of optional suffering that we're bringing on ourselves because of the silence we have in our culture.
1: So for this book, From Here to Eternity, you cover a lot of ground. You go from Belize to Mexico, Spain and Japan. I mean, death is is everywhere. Like, we all die eventually. How did you choose where to go? Which death rituals, I guess, sang to you from across the world?
0: It was really hard. I had so many places that I wanted to go. And the reason I chose the places I did is access. I wanted to go places where one, I knew that I would have access that no normal mortal would have. (laughs) And two, I wanted it to be places that I knew the right people to the point that if I came in to see a very intimate ritual taking place, or a family opened their home to me, that it wouldn't be this oafish, you know, big American white girl fumbling in without any context. They didn't know who I was because I didn't want to offend anyone or, or truly hurt their ritual or experience of their own death at
1: all. Right. And I think one place that really sums up that, that really delicate dance is something you call the holy grail of corpse interaction in South Sulawesi, (laughs) Indonesia. Can you tell us about this island and their their death rituals?
0: Well, South Sulawesi is actually quite a large island, or it's quite a populous island. And then in this one mountainous region in a place called Tanataraja, they have long done a ritual called the manene. First of all, when somebody dies, they will mummify the dead relative and keep them in their home sometimes for a year, two years, five years, however long it takes to fundraise for the elaborate funeral they have for the person. And during that time, the person gets food, they're dressed, they may sleep in the same bed as, as the dead person and when the time for the funeral comes they will have an elaborate funeral with animal sacrifices and then the person goes into a home-like gravesite, where every three years they are unwrapped and they are redressed and cleaned so not only is the mummy kept in the house even after the mummy is sent for burial after the funeral the family will continue to come back to the mummy every three years or so and refresh the mummy, clean the mummy, talk to the mummy, tell the mummy what's been going on. And it really is what my my friend Paul, who I traveled with, calls a soft border between the living and the dead. In America, we have a hard border, meaning when someone dies, they are absolutely dead. You can cremate them, you can bury them, their body doesn't matter. But in this part of Sulawesi, it does matter because it's a soft border you can constantly transgress that border and when you talk to the dead they can still hear you and they understand what's going on and they can you know they know when you're doing right by them and it's a continued relationship with the dead body and it is the holy grail of corpse interaction because For an American, that may sound just about the most horrifying thing you've ever heard, the idea of keeping mom around that long. But what was so amazing for me is just how normal it seemed when I was there. Though I think your experience,
1: at least reading about it, sounds a little not normal. I mean, you you did bring a pig, a ritual pig to be sacrificed.
0: Yeah, when I say it was normal, I don't mean it was normal for me. (laughs) I wasn't like, oh, just another day at the old mummy farm. (laughs) Um, No, not at all. But it was certainly, it was so obviously normal for them. And when the people around you are clearly so comfortable and so confident in what they're doing and the meaning behind what they're doing, you can't help but look around and go, "Oh yeah, this is this is fine. We're cleaning some mummies. Sure, great." Um, and as far as the moment when they when they brought them all out, this was interesting because they kept. I mean, we had flown longer than I've ever flown on a plane in my life. It's just about as far away as you can get to travel, and it was interesting because there was always this talk of oh well it'll happen on this day. Well, we're going to do something else today because the, the mummies aren't going to happen until a couple days and the, and the time frame kept shifting a little bit. And a goose who was our our local guide kept saying, "Oh, it's it's taraja time. Don't worry, it's taraja time." And so there was for me, it always felt like there was a chance that this wasn't going to happen at all, or if it if it did happen, we would be elsewhere. You know, they would have us go elsewhere and we wouldn't get to see it. But then the morning comes, and you walk out just along the main road in this village, and the road is lined with what they call house graves, which are just small, freestanding um, places where the mummies are kept. And here you have all of these families starting to bring out and stack their dead. And their dead are, some of them are very old in the sense that they died 20, 30, 40 years ago. And some of them are for the last three or four years. And you can watch them decide in this pile of wrapped mummified bodies, you can watch them decide which people they're going to unwrap. And they have discussions they say oh, okay that was that was uncle and, and he died a while ago i don't know that we need to unwrap him or someone will say i don't even remember who that one is <laughs> that one in the pink blanket i'm not even sure who that one is they can stay and then they'll be this is dad. Of course, we're going to unwrap him. He's going to be our first person. We're going to redress him. He's going to get the full treatment, basically. So it's really, it's kind of a strange post-mortem status symbol as to how long you get unwrapped and cleaned, I think.
1: What's amazing to me about that chapter and the illustrations that went along with it, too, is that this practice is so old. It goes back so long. And yet, um, these people have managed to hold on to it despite the fact that they're now dressing dad in like a SpongeBob SquarePants t-shirt.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they the bl- yeah, the blankets are Disney princesses. And there is this. And, and I know that the funerals themselves are taking cues from variety shows and, and and modern modern television shows. So it's certainly certainly changed over the years. And they're now the majority of them are now Christians. They used to have this animistic religion that they followed, and there was this pretty mass conversion to Christianity. But they've really managed to to syncretize the old religion and the new religion into this hybrid that still involves <laughs> taking out the mummies and cleaning and redressing the mummies. It goes way beyond, like all
1: saints day or christmas i think
0: (laughs) it does but you know with all of these places that i visited or quite a few of them i'll say there's this sense of the the church whether it's Catholic or or various Protestant denominations saying, well, this doesn't represent us. It's like, well, you know, especially Catholics, you are well known for hanging out with bones, for doing things with bodies, for worshiping body parts of various perceived saints and martyrs. You know, you got a long history of of hanging out with the dead body and interacting with the dead body and even worshiping the dead body. So not sure you're one to talk, guys. (laughs) Um, so another another interaction you have
1: is in Bolivia. where speaking of of uh, interactions with dead bodies. The relationship between the dead and the living goes beyond family members, and you have the phenomenon of the nietitas of La Paz. Can you talk a bit about these skulls and what relationship they have with the community?
0: Yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. So it it started with the um, one of the indigenous groups in Bolivia, and primarily the women, just statistically, it's more women than men, and they they have this perception that the skulls of the dead, particular skulls, call out to them and, and ask them to come to them. And whether they're in a graveyard or they're in a medical school or a dental school, these skulls come to the women in dreams and say, come pick me up, I'm ready to be a nyatita and they get the skull and they bring them back to their home and they create an altar for the skull and the skull isn't necessarily someone they knew in life at all it's not like you know jose died and then jose is now jose nyatita it could be a completely anonymous skull and then in the dream the skull will say i'm maria i'm your nyatita now and when a skull becomes a nyatita it is almost a conduit between the beyond and the living. So people will come to visit this nyatita, whether it's someone in their own home they have their nyatita, or there are women who are you know akin to akin to witch-like figures who have a whole bunch of skulls that people come to visit and they talk about love, they talk about finances, they talk about protecting their home. They just, it's, it's a way to come and have some sort of more direct conduit than the Catholic Church offers them with, with the beyond and the skulls, the nyatitas are that conduit.
1: Right, and they almost get like a, a second lease on life in a way, because these skulls eventually take on this whole new kind of existence. It's like an afterlife of their own kind of.
0: They really do. And it's it's hard, I think for for the Western perception, it's difficult to think, wait, somebody dug my mom's skull up and made you know put it on their mantelpiece and now asks it for love advice or help in love. Um, but first of all, in the you know, in the cemeteries in Bolivia, first of all, they only have a certain amount of time in the grave. There are all these charnels with a lot of bones. So it's a much different cemetery system to begin with. It's not this is my forever grave and I dug up your mom and stole her skull. It it doesn't work like that. And also, I think there's the way that how much these women and sometimes men just love these skulls and bring them offerings and put them in little flowered hats. And the reason that I was there was for um, this festival of the nyatitas that happens once a year, where they bring them out to the main cemetery in town or the general cemetery in town. And it's just a celebration. It's a celebration for these nyatitas. They're honoring them. It's their big day out. There's flowers, there's offerings. And just, I mean, you could do a lot worse post-mortem than being a nyatita. yeah I would I don't think I would mind <laughs> I don't either it's like your it's like you're big I'm back baby <laughs> and we're out and I get an amazing flower crown oh exactly it'd be a great way to go
1: um so I think both of those are examples of um, I guess rituals that seem a little out there for Westerners and one that um, that I think is a little bit closer to home is the Japanese practice of katsuage mm-hmm. which is a, a little twist on cremation. Can you talk a bit about that and, and why you included this pretty, um, I guess, normal Japanese ritual in
0: the book? Sure. I mean, well, and that's the deal, is that when you said that, I, I was wondering what you were going to say. I was <laughs> like, oh, which one seems close to home and normal? Because... A lot of people, when I explain this to them, they're like, they do what? <laughs> so I, I think it's still a bridge too far for many for many people in America. But what a Kotsuage is, is after the cremation takes place in Japan, and they have, you know, their funeral industry is is very high tech. They have these very nice cremation machines, especially in the larger cities. And after the cremation takes place, they pull out essentially this full skeleton. So what most people don't know about the cremation process is that what you have left is the skeleton, it's bones. They're incredibly brittle, but it's not ashes, it's bones. And we use a thing called the cremulator, which is a bone blender to blend down these big bones into what you know as ash, like when you would scatter your grandmother. And in Japan, they don't do that. They pull out the full body. And it's brought into a separate room where the family members take chopsticks and the urn is at the head of the person and they work their way up the body, grabbing the bones with chopsticks and putting them in the urn. So ending with the head so they can kind of walk upright into the beyond and then they take away that urn full of bones. And they're getting more into scattering now, so they'll they'll grind down the bones if the family wants it. But the traditional way is this chopsticks picking up the bones into the urn ritual, and I, I think it's lovely to be honest. I there's so many people who ask me, can I just keep the bones? I don't want you to do the whole cremulator, grinding the bones thing. Can I just keep them? And normally we have to say no, because California law at my funeral home requires that we have, quote, unrecognizable bone fragments that we give back to the family. So you can't be able to tell, oh, this is a little part of your femur. Oh, wow. So unless we get some sort of religious dispensation for the family, we have to do the grinding of the bones. But... What I've noticed recently, especially, even among people that I would never expect, they open the urn and they see the little bits of bone that are left that don't get totally ground down, and they want to pick through and find just those bones. There's something about the bones specifically that people find so intimate and such a relic of the person that died and makes them feel really intimately close to the person who died. And I'd love to see there be more more allowance for the bones being present in in the western world
1: yeah i think what's so interesting about japan is that there is this real connection with the with the body and with the ritual and it goes back thousands of years presumably but also japan is really really high tech and you also have places like the ruraden columbarium which is like mm-hmm all neon lights and LEDs, and it's like super cutting edge. I think there's this fascinating clash between the high tech and the reverently ancient in
0: Japan. Do you think that's a model for us going forward? What I love about Japan, as an American, is that it feels very aspirational to me in a way that's not way too far for anyone to ever accept it. And the Japanese used to um, consider the body quite corrupt and and dirty and they really don't anymore there's been a shift in perception and they now they do see it as more medicalized and they still want to do these rituals around it they still see it as the person that they they loved and they want to be with the dead body which is more than we can say for a lot of the american funeral industry but then after that they they are a very high tech high tech country and they bring that bring that desire into the funeral industry. You mentioned the Ruriden Columbarium, which is you walk in and there are 360 degrees of these crystal Buddhas that surround you and you use a key card. So say that your mom died and you put her ashes behind one of these Buddhas. You use the key card, you go poop boop, boop at the entrance and all of the Buddhas glow with these beautiful colors and there'll be one Buddha that's glowing a white, say, a different beautiful color. And that's your mom's Buddha. So it's like the it's like the whole space conforms to your visit with your mother. It's not like you have to scan the Buddhas and squint and find your mom. She comes to you through this light design. You might be like, oh, crystal light up Buddhas, that's really hokey. It's not. When you're there, you're just like, ah. It feels beautiful. It feels like a place that you can truly... Um, worship and visit with the dead as they would in Japan. And it's just a it's a great it's a great system. And they're doing that all over Japan. So at the
1: end of your book, you go 5000 miles from Japan back to the United States to these three American efforts to change our relationship with death um, to pyres in Colorado, open air burial mounds in North Carolina, and then your own funerary company in California. So why did you begin and end the book in the United States?
0: Sort of the beautiful part about being in a country that has so much death denial and such a regulated funeral industry is that it goes so far that it inspires some pretty amazing people to try and change things and try and stand up against the system. And the two people that I feature in my book, who are not me, are um, one is one is a group in Crestone, which is a small town in Colorado, that has the only community open air pyre in America, and really the Western world, I believe. And They're such an amazing community. They do all of the death themselves, from helping you from the moment the person dies, they'll come to your house, they'll prepare the body, they'll do a home funeral, they'll wait a couple days for everyone to gather, and then they do a procession at dawn to this open-air pyre. And when you're there, you know, talk about, oh, it's it's just this primal, beautiful, but still very contained experience. And the other, the other thing that I do is I visit this human decomposition facility, also commonly known as a body farm in, in North Carolina, where my colleague Katrina Spade is working on uh, creating a system to compost dead bodies. She's calling it recomposition. And instead of cremating a body, you would put it in nutrient-rich materials that break the body down to soil over a period of time. And it's a way to have a much greener, much more connected to the earth type of death. And who knows which of these things is really going to take off, which is the next cremation. We have a lot of different options, um, but but something has to shake up the sort of just embalmed, burial, cremation, you know, two-party system that we have going on in America right now.
1: Right. And what seems so symbolic and I think really beautiful too about these two methods that are taking place in these small places admittedly is that they're they're much closer to indigenous practices that were all over the country, all over the continent well before we got here.
0: They certainly are. Yes. And in in Colorado, the beauty of that is that And they actually feel kind of bad because people are contacting them from all over the U.S., whether they're Hindu, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're Native American, and saying, can we please come be cremated on your pyre? Because there's nothing else like it. And they have to say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, we're required to have you own land or live in the community um, because they're just a small nonprofit. So they can't take all the corpses from all over the U.S. to do this. But a lot of people want it because they come to, and a lot of immigrant cultures also come to America and they have their death rituals and they're told, no, you you can't practice them. It's illegal. Why is it illegal? The real answer is the funeral home lobby and their desire to control exactly what people can buy and uh, how they can dispose and memorialize their dead. And uh, that's, but I think people are to a certain extent waking up to that and saying that that's not acceptable.
1: If you want to learn more about death practices around the world, and we didn't even get to Mexico, check out Caitlin Dowdy's new book, From Here to Eternity. Caitlin's travels are accompanied by beautiful illustrations from Landis Blair, which you can see on our episode page, link in the show notes. We've also got a video of Japan's Ruriden Columbarium and links to Caitlin's YouTube show, where you can learn all about things as diverse as ghost marriage and the different ways there are to decay. Plus, on a more serious note, her book is a really good starting point for what can be intimidating or scary conversations with your own family members. Hope you're listening, Mom! Speaking speaking of my mom, the very first Halloween costume she made for me was a dark witch costume. All shadowy organza and long sleeves. I was trying to fight the stereotype, you know? No cats, I'm allergic. No broomstick, didn't want to carry it around. And definitely no hat, because it gets windy in autumn. So I was trying to be a cool witch. The thing about cool witches, though, is that they can only exist in places that don't actually believe in witches. No one besides your kid brother actually thinks that Mrs. Johnson down the street is cackling and cooking children in a big cauldron. In the United States, a witch is only a dark practitioner of magic and books and fairy tales and season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Otherwise, a witch is a modern feminist icon, a la The Craft or the rest of Buffy, or else actual practitioners of a pagan nature-worshipping religion. But in regions all over the world, and for much of our history, witches were not that at all. They were very bad and very dark, and they go away, way back. Here to tell us more about that dark past and present is Ronald Hutton, a historian at the University of Bristol and a leading authority on paganism, witchcraft, and magic. He has a new book out that should pretty much slake your thirst for witchology. It's called The Witch, a history of fear from ancient times to the present. Thanks for being here, Ronald. Thank you. So the witch is a sweeping history of one of our oldest figures, and over the thousands of years that we've lived with witches, or the ideas of witches, depending on, on what you believe, that word has come to mean a lot of different things. But in this book, you're focusing a little bit on the dark side of witchcraft. What makes a, a magic practitioner a witch to qualify in your book?
2: I focused intentionally on the idea of a witch as somebody who uses magic to harm others. Because I think that the belief that people can do that, and the belief in witches in that sense, is one of the most pernicious hangovers from an ancient world, and still today causes a lot of damage to people. So my book is a contribution to understanding and removing that fear, in other words, to ending witch hunting.
1: So how far back does the idea of a witch go.
2: You find them first recorded in our first recorded civilizations of the Near Eastern Europe. The idea that you may have heard of that you detect a witch by throwing her or him into water and then if he or she floats then they are guilty and if they sink they're innocent is first found in the Babylonian law code of Hammurabi which is around 4,000 years ago. And the first great witch hunters in Europe were not medieval Christians. They were ancient Romans, the pagan Romans, who killed people on suspicion of using magic to kill others on a scale unknown in later centuries in Europe. And thousands of people perished in Roman witch hunts hundreds of years before the birth of Christ.
1: Wow. Did the Romans in their witch hunts also have the same gendered ideas of witchcraft that that have lingered for the most part since the early modern age?
2: The Romans certainly had, and they were partly responsible for the later gender stereotypes and the historic witch hunts. Gendering where witchcraft is concerned is a variable across the globe, in that uh, among the majority of humans who feared witches – Some are stereotypically male and some are stereotypically female, according to the society. But the Romans thought witches were stereotypically horrible old women dealing in infernal substances and practices. And in many ways they wrote the script, which Shakespeare was later to pick up and make into the most famous witches in literature. So the Roman view of the evil female witch is fundamental to what comes later.
1: So what other local conceptions of the witch come together? And um, I guess which ones are discarded? Because there are witches, as you write, all over the world, but not all of them are similar and some are very different.
2: Yeah, views of witchcraft from across the world vary according to the type of person suspected of witchcraft whether they are thought to work in a group or alone, whether they use substances in their witchcraft, or whether it's just an inherent power inside them, and so forth. But what really creates the trouble is the consistent ideas, the ideas that don't vary across the world, that the witch, in this sense is a human being who acts to hurt others using magic, not for profit or for glory, but out of pure malevolence because they're allied with supernatural forces and figures of evil. In other words, they're rotten through and through.
1: And as you write in the book, that belief is still hugely pervasive today. People are killed or exiled for practicing witchcraft all over the world. What do you see as the solution to ending these, you know, horrible witch hunts in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo or or even Papua New Guinea, where as recently as 2012, you know, we've had horrible cases of kids being thrown out of their homes?
2: You've named two areas there, but in fact, it affects uh, most of the globe, including Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of the Middle East. A lot of South Asia are extending through the Indonesian islands right up to New Guinea, indeed, and um, a lot of the Western Pacific. So it's actually a growing problem on a very, very big scale. And that's one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about it. And the only ultimate solution is the toughest, which is to educate people out of fearing magic, showing them that they are immune to magic if they don't actually believe it can hurt them and therefore they have no reason to blame their neighbours for it and to hunt them down. This can be done, after all, it's, it's happened across most of the West in that witch hunting is no longer officially allowed in the traditional sense at the present day. And most of the regimes of the Southern Hemisphere have refused to, or simply declined, to think about bringing back laws against witchcraft. I think human beings are inclined to scapegoat by nature and it's regrettable, but I think we can probably eliminate this one particular pernicious type of scapegoat which has produced victims across a vast area and for so long. The reason why there's such an upsurge in witch hunting across so much of the world is because in societies which traditionally fear the witch figure, social and economic dislocation is going to produce particularly intense fear and disruption, and therefore particularly nasty witch hunts. And that's what's going wrong. It's about traditional societies that believe in witches and are hit by declining health standards owing to great poverty, a widening gap between rich and poor, and a profound sense of envy of uh, parts of the world that are doing better. And all these together produce a huge amount of misery, and misery breeds hatred, and hatred breeds witch hunting.
1: Right, right. And we can see that historically, too, when accusations of witchcraft spread almost like the plague. The early modern period in Europe is most famous for that. And one hypothesis about why, in addition to everything you just mentioned, is that these accusations boil over when those in power are losing control of populations like during famine or drought or when Catholics are suddenly dealing with uh, Protestant insurrectionaries. So what's your read on why witches resurface in communities when they do?
2: Well, they tend to become a focus for hatred and uh, mass witch hunting in societies which have a basic fear of witchcraft, but which is fanned to a fever height by extreme social and economic stress and dislocation. The reason, however, why early modern Europeans hunt witches is not just that they're living through a little ice age, not just the population is outgrowing its resources, not just that the Christianity of the time is fracturing to an unprecedented extent into the walls of religion as Protestant and Catholic divide from each other, but also that churchmen have cooked up a new idea of what a witch is. That is, somebody who's not just an evil magic worker, but is part of a rival religion, a satanic religion, one that is counter to all good religion and devoted to worshipping the devil. Really, witch-hunting the late Middle Ages is an outgrowth of hunting heretics, that is, hunting Christians that have the wrong kind of Christianity. And through the Middle Ages, the idea is becoming more and more common about hidden groups of people who are secretly worshipping the wrong kind of Christianity. And to mix that up with magic is to unleash fear on a huge scale, because you aren't just dealing with people who are devil worshippers, but they're potentially hidden inside every single community. And they are rewarded for worshipping the devil with powers to carry out supernatural acts of evil worked for them by demons who are there to assist them. And you put that lot together and factor in the whole objective of the conspiracy, which is to uh, destroy the human race and uh, remove God's love for the planet, you really are dealing with the biggest conspiracy theory in history.
1: There are some places, though, that you talk about where big, raging witch hunts really weren't that common. Um, It's something you talk about in the last section of your book where you focus on Britain. There were pockets of the country that escaped this big witch fervor. Why is that?
2: well it's everywhere except england and lowland scotland it's all what we would call the celtic cultures the british isles that's the native irish the people of the isle of man the people of wales and the people of the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. And that is because in those areas, in my opinion, the peoples tend to blame uncanny misfortune, sick children, livestock dying, house catching fire for no apparent reason, machinery breaking down, on land spirits of the kind that we'd call fairies now in English. And so they tend to have to deal with fairies in their own minds instead of having to deal with humans.
1: So what's the difference between those fairies and the other demons that were blamed for witchcraft before?
2: The demons blamed for witchcraft by Orthodox Christians are the servants of Satan. They come out of hell, they're fallen angels punished for rebelling against God in heaven, and they are utterly, utterly evil. Fairies, by contrast, uh, in the views of ordinary folk, are neither angels nor demons. They're completely disconnected from uh, the Christian universe. They inhabit the land or come out of a, a realm parallel to it or just beneath it. And they're not necessarily evil, but they can be extraordinarily powerful and very dangerous if they're provoked or in a bad mood.
1: So sort of like An older idea of a witch as a magic practitioner of of some kind, but not necessarily good or evil, but not human?
2: Well, the idea of a witch as not necessarily good or evil, uh, but human, is old. But it's only as old as the idea that a witch means somebody who's utterly evil. These two run parallel to each other. Certainly, however, fairies were regarded in many areas, the British Isles and beyond, as the natural helpers and teachers of magicians. So, in many parts of Europe, including the British Isles, if you were somebody who offered magical services like healing and divining and finding lost or stolen goods, then you'd often claim to be taught your powers by the fairies.
1: Seems like a smart marketing move. Can you talk a bit about the bigger magical universe? We've discussed uh, witches and fairies, but what about witches and familiars?
2: Yeah, magic sprawls like this vast continent or like an octopus in all sorts of different directions. And witchcraft, as I've defined it, is only one of those. Relationships with uh, familiars are relationships with demons. Across early modern Europe, it's believed that witches get their powers because the devil gives them little devils who are to help them out personally, your own personal trainer or assistant with demonic powers. And the devils are often conceived of across Europe since ancient times as coming in the form of animals. But England's most unusual in that the demons attached to witches after they make pacts with the devil. Are regarded as being rather cuddly household pets. So their cats, their dogs, their mice, their rats—they're rats. they're the kind of things that uh, the English would keep around their homes. Except in the witch's case, they're believed to be really dangerous demons in disguise that do the witch's work.
1: One last question for you, so that I can go into my Halloween costume fully informed. Um, Where does the witch's broomstick come from? You mention in the book a few ancient beliefs about witches flying around in the dead of night in places like Papua New Guinea. But how did witches fly before they had broomsticks?
2: Yeah, across the world there's two real images of of witches that are often existing side by side. And one is real people who live in your village, and they're the people who get hurt when witch hunts are launched, and they're the people who are suspected by their neighbours. But the other is a kind of supernatural witch, who is a figure, often female, sometimes male, who flies around at night and commits supernatural evil. And these figures blend almost imperceptibly into an idea found across a lot of the world of a kind of anti-mother or anti-midwife, a type of uh, supernatural horrid female that flies around at night rather like an owl or a bat and kills children. And you find this figure in the ancient world, all the way from the Middle East, from the Persian Gulf, right across to Germany. And it feeds directly into the making of the stereotype of the European witch. So witches don't fly very much in Europe until uh, the late Middle Ages, when this idea comes in of witches as being part of a satanic religion. And to practice a religion, to late medieval Christians at least, you need to gather in congregations and engage in acts of worship. And for people to do that by night from all over a large area, you have to have adequate transportation and flying is the best means. And so there are really two forms of locomotion that the people who believe in the conspiracy theory uh, imagine. One is that you ride upon a demon that's either a demon or transformed into the shape of a flying animal. And the other is that you take uh, a special ointment that you've made of all sorts of horrible ingredients, mostly dead babies, and you grease uh, an implement like uh, a pitchfork or a chair or a hurdle with it and then you fly on it as though it were a steed and one of the kinds of equipment that was commonly thought of as being used in this way is a broomstick as it's about the right length and size and thickness and shape for a steed and that's why the first illustrations of flying witches, show witches riding on broomsticks and one of those is on the cover of the book.
1: Which, on the cover of The Witch, Ronald Hutton's new book, is actually pretty cute. Kind of like a babushka taking the old broom for a spin. If you too want to become an authority on witches, if only for an upcoming Halloween party, definitely check out the book. I could not fit thousands of years of history into one podcast episode, but Ronald fit them into his book. And I can think of no better way to impress a date, on Halloween or otherwise. More fun witchy links in the show notes, too. And that's a wrap, just like a mummy. I've got some Halloween costumes to wrestle my dogs into. This is not their favorite holiday, let me tell you. Have a wonderful witchy time. Don't take candy from strangers. And we'll see you next time on Smarty Pants. Till then, take care and stay scared.